Hello and welcome to New People, New Ways, a podcast in partnership with Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions United Methodist that explores new ways of being church through the stories and insights of scholars and practitioners alike. I'm Piper Ramsey Sumner, a layperson and cultivator of Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference. And I'm Michael Adam Beck. I'm the director of Fresh Expression Florida and the director of Fresh Expressions UM. And collaboratively, we have the FXUM National Gathering coming up February 7th through 9th in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have almost 400 people registered to be on site. Um, so we're running out of space capacity. And so we've extended um, online uh, ways that you can participate and hub sites uh, where you can uh, gather a bunch of people at a, at a church or a, an event space and stream the whole thing that way. So uh, come to National Gathering. And if you do, you'll get to hear a keynote from our guest uh, today. Uh, we're joined by the Reverend Dr. Stephanie Morhan, uh, previously an executive for a Fortune 500 company. Stephanie is United Methodist Minister, Vitality Strategist for the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church Metro District, which services 126 churches across our area. She's launched innovative ministries. She's developed new faith communities. She's run for political office and is most recently my co-author um, on a book called Doing Justice Together uh, with a with a uh, kind of an ecosystem of resources around that book. So, uh, Stephanie, welcome. So glad you're here. Oh, guys, thank you so much for the opportunity to hang out with you all on this chilly in North Carolina uh, Wednesday morning. God bless you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's chilly. Actually, it's chilly for Florida here. It so is. it's like um, 20 degrees in Tallahassee. It, I don't know about Gainesville, Ocala. The weird thing is it was like 70 yesterday and it's like 20 today. Can't nobody do that but no. God, right? No, or, <laughs> or global warming or... <laughs> yeah. Yes. One of the above. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll hopefully this conversation will warm us up a little bit. And, uh, Amen. Don't forget about the cold some. <laughs> so, Stephanie, the opening question. Who is Stephanie Morehand? Wow, that's a great question. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. And most importantly uh, of all, I'm a, a child of the Most High God who's a lover of sports and um the calling is the shining uh, Christ light in dark spaces and places for transformation. Uh, that's who I am. That's who I am. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. So you, you began your career in the corporate world um, and uh, did some amazing things in that space. How did you actually find yourself as a United Methodist minister, like tell us about that journey. Um, yes, while I was in the uh, working for a Fortune 500 company and doing really, really, really well, um, God just kept was impressing upon my heart what I discovered I was doing. As I look back and reflect um, in the work I was doing, was I would have prayer with some like Miss Bell. I'll never forget her, and she had some problems. She wasn't from this country. Uh, and uh, she was sitting in one of our spaces one day out uh, in the airport, and I sat beside her, and we began a conversation, and I prayed for her. I found myself praying for her, 
and um, she crying. And then we had a date to pray once a week when we started the week. And um, we, there was a, there used to be chapels in airports and they're no longer anymore. But, uh, and so I found myself creating prayer time in chapel and God was tugging on my heart. I got married and we were pregnant with our first child. And I had an epiphany moment. Uh, God said, after I had uh, our first child, Ashley, that I'm sending you on a new journey. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but I was groomed to go to college. I was groomed to get a great executive job. I was groomed to make a lot of money and yay, God. Um, but God had a, God has a sense of humor. And so I went on a journey after I had we had Ashley. I made a decision to go deeper, to understand God deeper. And I went to Pfeiffer University uh, to begin working on a master's. And it wasn't really going there to work on a master's. I went there to discover God. So I took a spiritual formation class and did a labyrinth walk. And it was on that labyrinth walk that I had an epiphany moment and I pivoted. I did not go back to my Fortune 500, $100,000 year job. I went from that to zero because there was no income coming from me in our house. And that journey began, but, but it was really... I want a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And, uh, and on that journey, I ended up an ordained deacon clergy person in the United Methodist Church, the first uh, ordained deacon in Western North Carolina. And so uh, that began the journey, but there was no aspirations on my goal book to be a clergy person in anybody's church. Mm. Sounds like you were ministering, though, the whole time, even when you were there. Yeah, I, you know, it was just it, it was just natural. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the great diaspora of Methodism, um, and always in church, but left church when my mom died when I was 22 and my grandmother died the following year. And I asked the question to God, what kind of God would allow that to happen? And so I left the church. I left God. But God didn't leave me because what God did when I was um, working in that 500 or Fortune 500 company, that he sent a woman that I interviewed one day, one supposed to interview. And she said, hey, I want you to come to my church. So the the power of invitation is 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 real. And I was like, no, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. And in my head, I was like, heck to the no. But I really <laughs> said she old to the no. Uh, and uh, she pursued me. And just like God pursued me and she came with the right question one day as she pursued me in that dog on in the airport. She said, hey, are you dating anybody? And I said, not exclusively. She says, well, I got two guys at the church that I want you to meet. I'm going to choose who it is. And I was like, well, all right. One was a business manager executive and the other one was an attorney. And um, she chose um, um, Walter Chip Hand Jr., uh, to, to, for the date. And 22 years later, we've been married for 22 years. So it was at the church that I met my husband and, uh, married and have two beautiful children, young adultings in my house and in college. So yeah, it, the power of the church is, is powerful, the power of invitation. So that's kind of the, the culminating pieces in my life with faith and the intersection of faith and 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 um not knowing god not pursuing god but god pursuing me mm -hmm. wow thank god for um mothers and grandmothers who planted the seeds of faith in us right 
Amen to that. Amen to that. I had a, there's a song that says, I had a praying grandmother and great grandmothers. Yes, that's a real deal. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so shift gears a little bit. Um, through your work as church strategist, developer, uh, what have you found to be some of the greatest difficulties that the church faces when it comes to like vitality and innovation? Um, the challenge is, is change. And I don't, I would say it's just the church's um, struggle. I think it's society struggle, a uh, business struggle. Uh, that's why organizations go out of business is because the inability to shift. Let's talk about Kodak. They didn't shift. They had all of the stuff and didn't shift. And so we don't talk about Kodak anymore. And I think um, the church is, um, the church has to uh, embrace change. The church, the world pivot through COVID. The world changed through COVID. And some churches did not shift those minor shifts of going online because you could not meet in person. And so I think that's some of that's the challenge of our society, specifically and particularly the church, is that we want to do things like we've always done them with the same results that we've always done. But somebody said and wrote that's insanity. But mm -hmm. at, for me, I would say that's loss of the kingdom of God. And so in order for us to um, see the birthing and the groanings of the kingdom of God intersecting with the world, the church has to change. And I do this quote, um, the only person in the world that loves change more than anybody is a baby with a dirty diaper. <laughs> um, so the rest of us were hesitant to change because change goes into the unknown. Change goes into the unfamiliar. But isn't that who God is in our life? We're from, we're not too familiar with God, but we trust God and we have faith and the faith is blind and we're willing to take the step. And I think that's the, the danger of the church, but the greatness of the church, because we believe in that kind of faith. The question is, are we going to live into that kind of faith? Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, I just realized um, for you to be married 22 years, you what were y'all like 12 when you got married? Um, <laughs> I love, it. I love it. Yeah. Something like that. Something like Somewhere that. Somewhere around there. All right. Um, you know, I love how you teach about this and, and um, like the mental models of the church uh, were stuck in this paradigm. Um, like there's been a change of ecosystems mm -hmm. essentially, and we're still thinking programming uh, in the church in the old paradigm. Um, and what you do in your work, I feel like is help people shift and understand some of those changes and how to adapt um, to s some of the changes in our reality. Would you say that's accurate? No, no, it is. It is. Um, the, the work that I've done in, in Western North Carolina uh, is um, my doctoral work is organizational change mm. and um, pressing the issue of um, multicultural, multi-ethnic churches, pressing the issues of um, being developed and engaged and equipped inside the walls of the church. But Dr. Peter Story, who I've declared as my mentor, I had him uh, on when I did a couple of years ago, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, but 
um, racial justice healing uh, in the Metro District and, and people. And we, we, we had a whole slew of people online, over 100 and something people, sometimes 300 people online with us going on a journey to discover uh, who God is calling the church to become. And the church is not the building, it's individuals. And so creating a model to explore. And one of the things, prolific things that Dr. Peter Story said uh, as he closed us out December 15th of that year, he said the church is in danger of losing its soul if we don't get beyond the walls of the church. He said the church is in making, it's in birthing when we're inside of the walls of the church, but the church is in its fullness, its full glory of God when we leave the walls and encounter the cross-section of humanity out into the world. And that was the hard work. That's hard because people um, get a little nervous. And I was that person as well. So I'm speaking of myself is what do I say to people? <laughs> what do I say to people that's um, sleeping up under the overpass? What do I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how, I don't want to. So there's this scared, people are intimidated and a little afraid to encounter people that don't fit within their social economic neighborhood, friend group, family group. It, it's outside of that. And so we have to break those barriers down because the church was called to the world from its inception. Um, go, Acts tells us, once the Holy Spirit comes down, and the Holy Spirit is on the church. Some will debate, well, maybe the Holy Spirit has left the church. But I'm going to declare the Holy Spirit is in the church. We just got to wake up ourselves. But we're called to go Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. Now we have to have the courage to do it and use the tools to do it and interact in fresh ways um, to meet the people that are not going to come in our churches as they, is right, are, as they are right now. They're looking for a new thing, but God says there is a new thing. I'm doing a new thing now. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. And, um, you know, <clears throat> along that note, the Surgeon General released that report last year, of, um, you know, the epidemic of loneliness and isolation and uh, how people, you know, that epidemic increases uh, mental illness and depression and suicide rates and um, substance abuse and the highest overdose epidemic in the history of the country. Um, and that the church has a gift to offer, right? When we, when we take our focus off uh, our, ourselves and our interior life and we become a people who are blessed, broken and given to the world, we can heal that that isolation in the world uh, with relationships, with communal life in Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like your work helps churches to get in that space where they're, they're thinking in that way um, and reaching out in their communities in new ways. It's role modeling. It's, it's basically role modeling because clearly we have churches in every corner of the earth in America, right? And for whatever reason, I, I can speak to numerous churches that they used to be community churches, but people mm -hmm. have moved outside of the community, but still come to the churches. And yeah. there, when we do walks, I, I, I like to encourage people, okay, all right, well, don't talk to anybody, just talk to God, do a prayer walk around your community and just pray over the community and then ask God, once you kind of do that the first time, like second time or third time, then say, God, um, let me encounter someone that you need me to encounter today. And God then give me the utterance to say what I need to say or not say and listen. And, and, and those experiments 
you know, people gain the confidence to encounter someone that they may not look like me, someone that may not dress like me. Um, the list goes on and on. And it's those types of daring and courageous moves, first steps, that help people then know who their community is and the community know who they are. And once you build a relationship, the things that are in need in community can be resolved. But we first have to tear down the barrier of us and us's and thems and saying that we are we's because we're all God's children. And we are all humanity. And so we got to break down those barriers to begin trusting one another. And that's the, I think that is mm -hmm. the biggest boulder that we have is that we do not trust one another. And for some mm -hmm. reasons, we probably shouldn't trust some people. However, however, Christ calls us to love even our enemies. And that's the hard work that we have to do. Mm -hmm. Amen. A lot of this is related to the new book that Michael hinted at that you and uh, he have coming out uh, in about a month from when this will be this video will be live on February 20th um, called Doing Justice Together. So one of the ideas of the book is um, healing racialization. So I'd love you, Stephanie and Michael, as well, to talk a little about what about what that term means and why you used it. And then what do you think that looks like? in the churches, because that's who you're bringing this to. It's for congregations and teams. So I'd love to hear you explore that a little bit. Go ahead for it first, M Michael, and I'll. Sure. Um, so uh, I, I, I guess uh, let me share just a little bit of my own experience um, growing up in poverty and having a fairly uh, diverse experience growing up. Um, the first time I encountered the the evil of racism just in a really blatant uh way was in serving a church and i was sent to a, a rural church um in wildwood um in north central florida a lot of the churches in our area have their roots in the methodist episcopal south um which is a split off the united methodist church uh that there's methodist episcopal church and methodist episcopal south and split over slavery and um, to find that this congregation was actively uh, involved in, uh, and Wildwood is mentioned by Isabel Wilkerson in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. So sundown town, legacy of racism and segregation and redlining and all of it. Uh, and the church actually participating and even in some ways pushing that forward. And so here we're having Bible studies. You know, we're talking about Jesus. We're worshiping. In the same breath, I'm doing home visits and I have uh, chronologically mature saints who will drop the N-word and just blatant racist comments, um, which I was not prepared for that um, from my own life experience. Uh, and, and I participated in racism in different ways as well. But so I started to ask the question, how can we how what's the, the church has just failed at some level? When our discipleship does not include confronting the racism in ourselves um, and, and, and in the world and the racist systems that, that we live in and inhabit and move and have our being. Um, and so I felt like, can a church really represent the body of Christ without healing of that at, at some level? Um, so for me, healing of racialization is a, it's a, it's a journey of discipleship. It's our own personal confronting those isms that we all have in ourselves. 
um, there's a social aspect of it. Like the church has functioned in a, in a um, white supremacist kind of ideology and structure that that has to be challenged and broken down through shared power. Um, we can't just have diversity on the stage. I love the multicultural church movement and, and it took us far in some ways, but it also failed in many ways. If we don't have diversity on, in the boardroom and shared power, making decisions together. And then we have to start new churches that have an, an intrinsic motivation to heal racialization and to deal with the, the social ills, one of them being racism. And then we have to deal with the, the structures um, that sustain racism, the, the policies and laws and, and legislation that um, sustain racism. So all of that would be what we're thinking in the book of healing racialization. Absolutely. And I will t tag in is that I was a student athlete all the way from elementary to college. And I remember um, my senior year in high school was a pretty good student. I mean, good, pretty good student and excellent um, uh, baller. Uh, and we were we were in this rural area. I don't even remember the name of the area. My coach, I called her. I was like, hey, what was the area? She can remember. But um, and we we're playing a game, basketball, girls, high school. And in that gymnasium, the refs, every time I touched the ball or went near someone, they would call a foul on me and I almost fouled out. And so we had a strategy around that. Every time I shot the ball, they said I walked and still like scored 30 some points. Um, but at the at the halftime, my coach said, we're not going in the locker room. And, you know, we never do that. And so we sat on the bench. I had no clue what was going on. I may have been one of two Afri three African-Americans on our team. And when we got to the fourth quarter, she said, listen, Stephanie, when we get ready to walk out, nobody's going to change clothes. You need to walk between me and the assistant coach. And no clue, no idea what they're talking about. Like, what? Just listen. And um, they were calling names. They were using the N-word. Um, and I didn't, under, you know, I wasn't, I was sheltered as a kid. But when we got on the bus and these people followed us out, we were kids in high school. They followed us out calling me nigger over and over and monkey and all these names. I get on the bus. They close the door and these adults, these adults shake our bus, throw bricks and rocks at our bus. My team covered me, laid on top of me. My coaches, some of the players laid on top of me. And I get it because I haven't thought about this until I wrote this book. So this book was um, I was doing the writing and we got out of there and then the bus was silent. And friends, I never talked about that. We never talked about that until I wrote was a part of writing this book. And it came to my mind that I saw two worlds, a white world that hated me because of the color of my skin and a white world that loved me because they knew the humanity of who I was. And that's my coach, Edith Styron, and the coaching staff and my teammates. And I saw that there is a problem in America that we have some that will judge me because of the color of my skin. And so with that, race is a construct. Race is not real. It's a construct to divide us. Humanity is real the humanness, the human nature of who we are. And that's what we have to dismantle. We have to tear down those constructs of racialization to get to the real crust of the matter. The Bible tells us 
that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible tells us that we are the image of Christ and that when God created humanity, man and woman, God said we were good. That's the hard work that we have to peel this onion back and get back to that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, it is clear in the Bible where it says, love your enemy. So you have to love your enemy, but, but you also have to be an advocate and you have to be a voice to tear down the walls that divide us because the church is the hope of the world. And it starts, in my humble opinion, with those who say they believe in Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's good stuff. I'm ready for that book to come out. <laughs> I it is. I think that's such a um, it's such a powerful thing. And there is a bit. There's a the paradox of that. I think a lot of a lot of Christians who believe in justice and hope to create a world that's full of God's love that is inclusive and those kinds of things. Um, you have to live in the tension of there are also people who are Christians who perpetuate harm and who perpetuate racism and exclusion and these things that go very much against everything that I know that I believe and what I read in the Bible and the things that I've learned. And so it's not something that's going to just happen overnight and that we can just yell about long enough that everybody is going to listen and that all white people are going to wake up without the very deeply internalized racism that every white person has within them. It's a process and it takes a very long time. And so I like that your the title of your book is Doing Justice because it the ING shows that it's something that's ongoing. It's not something that just happens, but it's a process and it's a journey that you walk through um, alongside the people around you, which makes it a very tough thing. And it's a big ask, a big ask for everybody involved. But I think if you believe that it's worth it, then put in the work and make it happen, you know? So. Well, Piper, I would say um, uh, um, I'm in this other cohort and eternity is at stake. It, it, eternity, mm. salvation and eternity is at stake. Your, Our personal self eternity, whether we're going to make it to see Jesus again. And that's the desperation of this. And that's the sense of urgency of this, because here's the deal. We catch enough Sheol here on this side of Jordan. Lord knows I want to get into heaven. But while I'm here, we are called to speak to just issues. We are called. Remember, the, the United Methodist Church, as it is now, I don't know what the numbers are now. But when I was doing numbers before pre-COVID, we're 98% Anglo congregations. 98%. But America has is has, has diversified is more diverse mm -hmm. and we've got to be able to cast the net on the other side of the boat which means we have to be welcoming but in the inception of methodism during slavery uh come the slavery coming over we really were a multicultural uh church and then folk got a little antsy and wanted to relegate people up in balconies and couldn't be included in the wholeness of the church. And the church split. I'm a part of the diaspora of the Methodists that left the inception of Methodism. So for me, it says the remnant is there. It says the roots are there. But are we willing people to do the work so that we can welcome all of God's children into our 
spaces and places to then go out into the spaces and places to multiply making disciples for the transformation of the world. That's the courageous move, but we have to learn to do it together, not in silos, not in segregated spaces and places, but together. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. Don't you love this stuff, y'all? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. I was yeah. waiting. I could feel Michael's got something else to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm trying to not um, say too much, uh, but just our, you know, our key passage that kind of what this idea was grounded in is Micah six eight, and there's just this theme throughout all of Scripture, um, and James Cone picks up on this, you know, that God is the God of the oppressed, and mm -hmm. there's multiple times that the prophets, major and minor call out and say all your religious stuff is useless like you call this a fast you know keep that stuff mm -hmm. your religiosity what does the lord require but to walk humbly and to do justice and so there's uh and the there's another prophet who picks that up it's kind of his rally cry right uh, a guy named jesus of nazareth who in luke 4 stands up in the synagogue and says the spirit of the sovereign lord is upon me he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and to set the captives free and all those things. And what has happened in the church where that's been totally disconnected, where I can be a good, you know, Christian, go to service and do my tithe and listen to my sermon. And then the other, and then I'm just blatantly racist in my thinking and actions and behavior and support racist politicians and policies and those kind of things. So, um, I think what we're trying to do in the book is is follow that theme of a God who says, I'm the God of the orphan and the widow. I'm the God of the one who's marginalized and oppressed. I'm I'm the God who hears their cries, move to the bowels with love, and I act. Um, and the church is supposed to be an expression of that in the world um, as the body of Christ. So the way Stephanie puts this, that's so beautiful. I, I love that how you just give us hope that the prayer of Jesus can be answered, right? Um, that he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And then Stephanie paints this beautiful picture in the book of the throne room situation where every tribe and race and people are worshiping together Jesus. And how can we become part of the ingredients of Jesus' prayer now where that starts to come into the world now? So... Mm -hmm. Right now, too, by the way, not now, yesterday or, or next week. And I want to insert that to what um, Michael said. I, I my, my doctoral work was on Revelation 7, 9, and mm -hmm. it blew me away. I'm going to be honest. I, you know, I went to seminary and all that good, great stuff, um, but I never paid attention to that. But if we're talking that that is going to come to pass, and then we go to the text that says on earth as it is in heaven. I never went down to the last uh, 13 through 17. And I want to read this because this put fire in my belly. Um, Revelation 7, 13 through, it says this. Then one of the elders asked me, the, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who came out of great tribulation. <laughs> They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are born and before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again were they hungry. Never again will they thirst. 
The sun will not beat them down, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, that is the hope. That is the work to get to that point in humanity that we're all of those who say we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's the courageous work they're called to do. Yes. Doing justice together. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love that you said now it's not something that we wait. We're waiting. We don't have to wait till heaven. We create that here. The kingdom of heaven is on earth. It's happening now. Um, Mm -hmm. We're participating and co-creating it along with Jesus, along with the spirit. And I was something that you talked about. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to keep going, but if you have more, I want to hear it. So I was just going to say um, the now, when we say now, the sense of urgency of now and, and, and from this book inception and, and birth of the book, uh, Michael and I began talking to say, because there's some things that did not make the book. There are some stories that did not make the book. And so we were brainstorming and talking and said, hey, maybe God is saying to build around the book. And so we're going to look at creating cohorts so that people can learn how to do this because this is not easy work, but it's not hard work either. And so um, we're building a brand around it so that we can do um, cohorts for a year, that we can do a once a month thing. We can do an introductory on how to practically do these things. At the end of the day, we've had training thousands upon thousands of trainings, but the question becomes, do our hearts change? And Mm -hmm. so we're in the business of changing people's heart by building relationships. That's why together is so important. Together, having the hard Mm -hmm. conversations together, but having practical frameworks to actually hold people accountable to do them and then come back and reset and do them until we master this work in which we're called to do. David? David, love it, love it. Michael. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, one of the, the circles of healing that we talk about in the <clears throat> healing racialization journey is um, justice-oriented expressions. And these are contextual churches, aka fresh expressions of church, uh, what they're called in Central and Latin America, base ecclesial communities, different movement, but similar ideas. Um, but these are communities that spring up with a passion to love and serve community. Uh, they have an intrinsic motivation to, to challenge um, injustice and inequity. Um, so they're, they're communities that at the heart of their life is, is social justice. And that's not disconnected, that the community forms around that. Um, so, uh, Stephanie, how do you see racial, racialization get kind of healed in those kind of communities, in those kind of spaces? Um, I I think the one-to-one, the two-to-two, the group-to-group conversations, and we have to be willing. My mom used to tell me, Stephanie, God gave you two ears and one mouth. So why don't we listen more and talk less? But as we're listening to other people's stories, we will discover that there is more, um, we are more alike than we are different. And our stories, and I think other people create 
chaos. And so it's important that we know the truth. And we won't know the truth about someone until we sit down and maybe have a meal with someone, um, sit around table and have coffee with someone or groups of people that are on opposite polar potentially. But we can come together by listening to one another, seeing one another, and then talking with one another. And I think it comes in that, that order. We have to listen, we have to see, and then we can share. And if we share our stories, our stories are pretty connected, interconnected. And then when we do that with a faithful heart, a prayerful heart, God does the transforming, we don't. God can then mm -hmm. intercede in those spaces when we are genuine one with another. And that's the hard work because you got to get people at the same table together to have those hard and courageous conversations. Yeah. Uh, let me share a story too. That's in the book. And by the way, so there's, there's a book uh, which is fairly short and easy, more practical. There's an ebook that has all the like deep work of say people, the biblical and sociological work of to just come to terms with the the realities of racism and racist structures. Then there's all these stories that our beautiful friends um, open their hearts and had the courage to share stories uh, where they've experienced racism and and it's healing in different situations. And so then there's a whole uh, United Methodist Publishing House has a channel called amplify media some call it the netflix of uh like for christians but there's a whole doing justice channel on there with all these different stories so there's all these adjacent resources of this but one of the stories in the book um is is about wildwood i mentioned this church earlier and we started doing a little fresh expression in the mlk called connect and that opened up all these different opportunities we started a thing called trap stars for jesus uh, teaching re resourceful entrepreneurs a better way. Um, and, and all this community connection and energy started happening. We were doing anti-racism marches in the community. That connected us with Pastor Taylor and Lady Taylor, Cynthia Taylor of God's Glory Ministries. And they moved into the Wildwood campus. Um, and right away, half the congregation left. They said things like, they have their church and we have our church. And blah, blah, blah. One of them called Jill and I's um, biracial granddaughter a uh, half-breed and, and mm -hmm. said we shouldn't be mixing the species. And it took everything we had to like not, not um, do something we shouldn't do as pastors. But um, they, they moved in and we started trying to combine worship um, and uh, do mixed worship. That just didn't work. Everybody was upset. We had people on both sides like uh, so uh, as Stephanie said, we started this thing called Taste of Grace, which is a dinner church that we shared together. And we did a we did a uh, we tried to do a shared power dynamic. So we did not do a rental agreement. There's no money exchange. And we invited Pastor Taylor and God's glory leaders to be on the core leadership committee. So we made decisions together. It wasn't a white church telling a black Pentecostal church how the it was together. We said, let's become one and make these decisions together so there's shared power and not a monetary arrangement. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do in every situation, but for us, it was kind of a reparations thing. We started this thing called Taste of Grace, and each week, Pastor Taylor or myself or Jill or 
uh, our lay folks would get up and do a Jesus story and just facilitate conversation around tables. So rather than sitting in a pew, orienting to the front, singing some songs and then going back, people had to actually sit at tables and learn each other's stories and ask questions and get to know each other. And that started to heal that racialization, as, as Stephanie described, like uh, to really sit and know one another and to, to be a listener um, and to have the, the hard conversations that created this depth of community and relationship that I don't think you get just by going into a church and, you know, singing the songs and listening to a sermon. And so these expressions create that possibility. They can be smaller, intimate groups where people are really, really sitting around getting to know each other. And they join the diversity that's often already in the community that, as Stephanie said, that's not reflected in, in the United Methodist Church, right? It's 98%. And there's inequity in the United Methodist Church. Like we're one of the denominations that basically institutionalized racism with the creation of the Central Conference and all that. And we see inequity in salaries. We see inequity in um, churches for women and persons of color um, and all that's still a part right now of our denomination. But I think these little communities can can create a like a grassroots level kind of movement that can maybe start to heal and change that. It's, and, and, and that is real. Uh, uh, that That is uh, real talk. And, and the thing is, I just will add to that, is that it's time to have real talk. Hmm. It's, it's time to um, examine that what we say, does it align with what we do? And we'll discover a lot of times it doesn't. I had the privilege of working uh, in the Florida conference uh, a year and a half ago under the leadership of Bishop uh, Ken Carter, and um, the leaders there that have had declared that we've got to examine, and they did a deep dive examination of their conference, and they have tools now that are in place, and it's not it's not fixed, it's not 100, but they did the hard work, they asked the hard questions, and they answered the hard questions, and then they put solutions around the things that plagued uh, that annual conference. I do believe this. Every annual conference has to do that um, to examine, to say what Christ said, what we are saying, does it align with what we're doing? And if it's not aligning to what we're doing, then we need to do um, have x-ray and make sure that we go in and surgically make sure that we get healthy again, because God's church is a healthy, vibrant church. And we can't be a healthy, vibrant church when we have systems in place that aren't eradicated in our system so that we can truly be the church because the world sees us and watches us and, and, and the church is shrinking, but God's church, the word says it will still stand. But the question is, what's the remnant of the church going to be? And I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that church. That's going to make sure that all are welcomed in it and that we, we look at our infrastructures and we dismantle those things so that we can build up the right kind of entities which God would be pleased with us. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's hard to, th it's, it's a, it's a long journey, you know, to get to that place where you are, um, where you're even willing to begin to do that kind of self-examination. It's a, it's a big, long process. Um, but I know for me growing up, um, 
or, you know, when I went to college, you, you guys mentioned Micah six, eight, when I was there um, getting my degree and doing all those things, I was feeling like there was something that I always was like, I don't know about this when it came to church, even though I was in the ministry department and um, when it came to being a Christian. And then I took old Testament theology and we were reading the prophets and it was all about justice and about caring for, um, the disenfranchised and caring for the oppressed. And that's when it was like, it be like the being of being a Christian, the doing it kind of clicked for me. And that's when it began to make sense. And when, um, I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'm in, I'm definitely in like, this is what I believe this, all, all of the things that I've read about Jesus and everything I've read so far, it can, it kind of was wrapped up into a place where it made sense that God is a God that cares about justice and that God cares about um, us recognizing the humanity within each other and living accordingly and doing that hard work because doing justice, it's a, it's a process. It's a, something that takes mm -hmm. effort that doesn't just happen overnight or we can't just think, oh, I'm not racist. That's all I need to do. It's a process. It's, it takes a lot of work and a lot of self-reflection, which is hard and painful. White people who have not been asked to do that ever in their lives, that's a very difficult thing to even start to begin to do. And so I love that we have both of you writing this book together because I think it helps, because it's like um, Michael is an example of a, of a white guy who is taking this stuff seriously and he's trying his hardest to put it into practice, partnering alongside the people of color in his life, and um, so you two together make a really great team and I'm looking forward to the book. And the Fresh Expressions you am gathering, are you guys, what are you guys gonna be doing there to talk about this? Go ahead, Fred. Yeah, so I'm excited Michael to hear <laughs> Stephanie's keynote um, and we'll be doing a workshop on this and um, there we're gonna launch some different pathways because <clears throat> I think, as Stephanie mentioned, um, it can be really hard for churches to try to navigate this by themselves and leaders. And so we want to walk alongside and offer cohorts and um, uh, different frameworks and tools to help people along the way. Um, so that national gathering, we'll have a workshop where we'll introduce some of these ideas um, and some follow ups, because I think we were both committed. We don't want to just create a resource like there's plenty of books out there um that that do this work but we want to actually create pathways that are practical where this can happen where there can be follow-up um so a big part of national gatherings for us is going to be launching some of those things and helping people to understand where they can get involved and we'll have copies of the of the book on hand and do some book signing there and all of that and hopefully we'll get to connect with lots Ooh. of new friends and yeah yeah, well, we're excited. We're excited. We're excited uh, about the opportunity. Um, and right, Michael, this is the first, the first national gathering. And yes. um, so we're in our inaugural season of it. And it's going to be fun just to know that that amount of people are going to emerge on in Charlotte. And it's not general conference. That is an amazing uh, feat. Mm -hmm. uh, and the work in which people are hungry, that just shows people are hungry. Uh, to do and to learn how to do church differently than um, that was handed down to us because our great grandparents had a church and grandparents had a church, parents had a church. We are leaders in a church and how we're going to hand it off to the next generation. 
and they're already saying what they don't like. So, um, because they want us to be engaged in community. So this is a tremendous opportunity to, to relearn uh, some things about the church and how we can engage mm -hmm. within, within humanity throughout the world. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, great. So our final question. All right. <laughs> what does the future of the church look like to you and what is your hope? The future of the church looks like, for me, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people worshiping God together, but not only worshiping God together, taking their worship of God and adoration for God out into the hedges and highways of life so that those who are marginalized in our society, that we are being the voice of change and the voice of ensuring that all of God's people have the necessity to have a quality of life in which I believe God calls us to do and be. That's the church I'd like to see. Amen. Beautiful. Love that. Well, finally, is there anywhere that listeners can find what you're up to online, see what you're doing in North Carolina, get your book, give us some links. <laughs> so I'm on uh, Facebook. Stephanie Moore Hand. I am on Instagram, uh, the same handle. I'm on Twitter. And we're launching a, uh, a website, actually, to house, uh, do consulting around the country. And so I'm going to officially uh, broaden that website that we have. I do women's conferences, but also do consulting. And so we're launching that to include this work in which uh, Michael and I are going to uh, launch throughout the nation so that people can. So in those other two social media platforms, I'll have that information. We'll have that combined information there once that gets up and running so that people can give us feedback and things of that nature and inquire, but come to the conference in a couple yes. of weeks and you'll see firsthand and get to meet us firsthand and we can um, offer up. And then the other thing is go to Amazon and buy the book because it is a beginning stage of it and it has our information in that as well. So those are the, the platforms I would offer up. Awesome. Cool. I'll put, I'll put all those links up there so people can find it and see what's up. Thank <laughs> well, thank you, Stephanie. This is great. Listen, thank you all and God bless. Thanks. Thank you so much. And to those listening, thanks for joining us on this episode of new people, new ways. If you enjoyed our conversation with Stephanie, please share it with a friend. And if you want to learn more about Fresh Expressions, you can go to freshexpressionsfl.org and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. See you next time on New People, New Ways. <laughs>